Well, one of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Augustine, used a phrase to describe sin. It's a Latin phrase that said, incurvata in se, which means turned inward on oneself. Martin Luther picked up that same idea and said that sinful humanity is curved inward. The Bible calls it lovers of self instead of lovers of God. It's the idea of seeking fulfillment apart from God, and it is the root of all sin, as we will see this morning. We see the evidence of this reality in the world around us. People trying to find fulfillment in possessions, in pleasure, in beauty, even the pursuit of truth. It's an effort to be satisfied in what God created instead of the Creator Himself. Romans describes it as exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for cheap imitations that never satisfy what our hearts long for most. Augustine said, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until we rest in him. The truth we seek is not a, a body of knowledge. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ broke the power of sin's inward curve when he gave his life on the cross. It's the only way to turn love of self into a, a, a sacrificial love, a love that considers the needs of someone else as more important than your own. And apart from Christ, we cannot break sin's inward curve. In fact, even in Christ, it's a difficult process, a, a process of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me give you an example. I felt like I was doing pretty good with selfishness until I got married. <laughs> and then I realized how selfish I really was. I felt like I was gaining ground until we had kids. <laughs> and then I realized there were whole levels of selfishness that I'd yet to, to discover. What I've learned is that I have a natural, natural tendency to curve inward. And I think that tendency is true for every single one of us. Our eyes need to be outward towards Jesus Christ so that he can shape us to become the men and women that he's designed us to be. This morning, Paul has some really strong words about those who lead others towards selfish pursuits, especially when those people infiltrate the church. Their influences can shipwreck your faith. They can lead you astray. So Paul makes it very clear. He says, avoid such men as these. He wants Timothy to take the lead, to, to shepherd and guard the church. But he wants the church to be aware of what's around them. So what he has to say to them will apply directly to us. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning with uh, humble hearts. We realize that apart from you, we curve inward. We become lovers of self instead of lovers of you. We seek fulfillment in things 
that you created instead of the Creator Himself. And so, Father, help us see this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is open to your Spirit's work so that you can shape us to become the men and women that you've designed us to be, people who look outward as you did and cares for the needs of others is more important than our own. Hear our prayer, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off last in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul continuing his letter to Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now I'm going to pause there because I want to speak to what Paul is referring to as the last days. It's actually a fairly common phrase used throughout the the Bible in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the term was used to describe the, the coming of the Messiah, that age in which God's promise of salvation would be fulfilled. The New Testament picks up on that promise and looks at Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of that promise. He is the Savior who would come to set us free. So on the day of Pentecost, when when Peter is speaking to that large crowd that is assembled, it's no surprise that he refers to that promise. If you want to, you can look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter speaking, quote from the prophet Joel in saying, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. Peter is telling the crowd, Those last days that the Old Testament prophets were speaking to are right now. These are the last days. He goes on in verse 21 to say, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The writer of Hebrews echoes those same thoughts in chapter 1, verse 1, when he said, God the Father spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. It's important to understand that even now, we are living in the last days. That term is used to describe that window of time between the first and second coming of Christ. An era of the gospel where, as it says in Acts, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But make no mistake, we are living in the last days and each day we live is one day closer to Christ's return. Now, I recognize that some may hear that and say, yeah, right, last days. We've been saying that for now over 2,000 years, right? What's so last days about that? The Bible actually speaks to that issue. If you want to, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and listen to what he writes in chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, that's just a big foolish lie. Last days, it's not happening. But look at how Peter goes on to explain in verse 8. 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Make no mistake, we are living in the last days. And each day we live is one day closer to Christ's return. Which is why in our chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 of our passage, it says, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. He's speaking about things that you and I are experiencing in our world today. In case you're not convinced, listen to the list, beginning in verse 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, that's a long list, and it's a pretty depressing list, isn't it? But I want you to notice that really every attribute that follows must follow out of that first description. In fact, I think you can put a colon there. I know there's not one there, but it says, for men will be lovers of self, colon. The reason I believe that's true is because everything that follows, follows as a result of loving self more than loving God. It is the root of all sin. Everything flows from that truth. When your heart curves inward, you seek to find fulfillment apart from God. You see, that next attribute, love of money, helps us kind of see this a little bit more. Love of money. Money in and of itself is not evil. In fact, you can use money in some very godly ways. But when your heart curves inward, you're only thinking about yourself. And and this is very subtle in the world in which we live today. In fact, you can be a very generous person and still love money more than you love God. And in an affluent society like ours, it is a common reality. We see it when our needs come first, when we get what we want, and then we give God what's left. Instead of giving to God first and then living off of what's left. We see it in our efforts to be financially secure, putting our hope in our treasure in heaven so that our peace is proportional to our bank account. That's what it looks like. Like the parable that Jesus says, ta- tells about the man who kept storing up the grain from the abundance of his crops. He kept making crops. He kept storing up the abundance, laying it aside so that he could, quote, take ease, so that he could eat, drink, and be merry. He did not have a worry in the world, but he was completely bankrupt in heaven. Jesus said he laid up treasure for himself but was not rich towards God. And here's what I think is true. In our world today, we would look at that man and we would admire him for his success. And Jesus looked at him 
as a fool because he could not see past himself. Money is an idol when it brings fulfillment that should only be found in God alone. We see Paul speaking to this issue in 1 Timothy. Listen to what he says in chapter 6, verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the snare of many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. When we long for money, we lose sight of faith. When we get what we want, we lose sight of what others might need. Lovers of self use money for selfish gain. They become boastful and arrogant in what they've accomplished. Look at how he continues in describing them. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient. Those are some strong words. That word boastful is, literally means swaggering bounce. In the original language, it's a real word picture. You kind of you see these people, right? They kind of got a, a swaggering bounce. You know what it looks like. They want people to notice them. They want people to be impressed with them. They feed off of approval and what others think about them. Very often, in an effort to make themselves look big, they'll put others down. They're revilers, malicious gossips, haters of good. They hate good because it takes the attention off of them. They're fine with good as long as they get the credit for it. They're malicious gossips. In order to gain leverage, they're unloving, irreconcilable, especially with people who get in the way of what they want. They are most offended when someone says no. In fact, they oppose authority in general. People like this go from job to job, and it's always an issue with their boss. The truth is, they have a problem with authority. The very same issue with kids who are disobedient with their parents. They don't like to be told what to do. And this kind of attitude carries right over into their relationship with God. Because listen, if you can't submit to the authority on earth, you will not submit to the authority of God. Which is why they become ungrateful, unholy, unloving. Like Jesus said, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You will not love God if you love pleasure. Now, these are some pretty condemning characteristics, right? Don't you feel like you could spot this person a mile away, right? And I didn't even go through all the details of every single one of these attributes. And yet, look at verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied his power, and so avoid such men as these. The Greek word for form is morphosis. It means outward appearance. You would think you'd be able to spot these people a mile away, but the truth is they look like everyone else. That outward appearance looks nice, which is why they're in the church. <laughs> they look like everyone else sitting around them. The only difference? It says they've denied the, the power of godliness. So think about that. What's the power of godliness? What is the power that transforms lives? 
to the glory of God. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when they deny the power of godliness, they are denying the Holy Spirit. These are people who claim to walk with Christ, but yet they don't submit to His rule in their life. They might fulfill religious obligations, they they look good on the outside, but their heart is curved inward. Jesus actually describes the Pharisees like this. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, he compares them to a cup that's clean on the inside, I mean on the outside, but he says on the inside they are filled with robbery and self-indulgence. These are people who claim to be a Christian, and yet they do not live a life of faith. And Paul is clear, avoid such men as these. And here's why. Their compromise is contagious. It's like trying to help a drowning man. (laughs) Only going to take you down with him. Bad company corrupts good morals. So avoid people who say one thing, but then live something different. Look at how he continues and gives us a little more insight into their motives in verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, the true motivation of these pretend Christians are to take advantage of others, especially those who are vulnerable. Our passage says weak women, but I do not believe there is a gender bias here. I think Paul is speaking specifically to an issue in the Ephesian church. The reason I don't believe there's a bias because it says they are vulnerable because they are weighed down by sins. That could be true for a man equally as much as a woman. That being said, it's easy for a woman who wants to be loved to cling to a man who says that he will. Instead of patiently discerning, seeking and following counsel, They react impulsively, only to find themselves in a relationship that is not centered on Christ. Now, it may look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's selfish gain. And when decisions are made with emotions, it is easy to be deceived. Don't miss what I just said. When decisions are made with emotions, It is easy to be deceived. Not only that, when we don't deal with our issues, we tend to take that baggage right with us into that next relationship. Being weighed down by sin is someone who is letting their past dictate their present. Instead of finding healing through confession, they hide their sin in shame. They carry it with them instead of taking it to the Lord. This is what makes them so susceptible to being led astray. They readily accept advice without examining it for truth. And they end up believing a lie. And when you believe lies, it only makes it more difficult to believe what is true. It it creates a barrier in your relationship with God. To the point, as verse 7 tells us, that they're always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that verse, and it scares the living daylights out of me. Always learning, 
but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. These are people who sit in the pews every single Sunday. They're taking notes. They're filling out the outline. They'll show up at BSF this week. They'll be involved in a home group. Always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And here's what's significant about that. Remember, we said truth is a person. So you can only know truth when you come to know Christ. You can only grow in knowledge when you faithfully walk with Christ. Our faith does not grow by simply gaining more knowledge. Here's what's scary. It's possible to have all the right answers, but not let those answers inform how you live. It's possible to have all the right answers without letting those answers inform how you live. That's what's happening in Ephesus. That's what's going on with these things within the church. They are searching God's word, but they are not letting God's word search them. Instead of following Christ and finding freedom and and forgiveness and grace, they live a charade in order to cover their shame. And they're exploited by imposters who distract them from repentance. They give them a quick fix in order to cover their guilt and shame. But hear me clearly. The only way that sinful man can cover their guilt and shame is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ who took our guilt and shame to the cross. Which is why it says in Scripture, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus took our guilt and shame, which is the only reason that the Scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died to remove our guilt and shame. We must die to self in order to live for God. And that's not a quick fix. Look at how he continues in verse 8. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men who opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, and also that of, the, that of those two came to be. These are interesting verses because these men, Janus and Jambres, this is the only time you're going to find them listed in Scripture. The only way we have any clue as to who these people are is from the Jewish Targum, which is basically a a commentary written by rabbis to the Old Testament. And in that commentary, they identify Janus and Jambres as two of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. So you may remember when Moses appeared before Pharaoh and he turned his staff into a snake and the magicians matched the miracle, that was Janus and Jambres. Those were the magicians, and that's what he's referring to. Their example is relevant because like those magicians, these false teachers are opposing what God is trying to do. They're men of depraved mind because they're deprived of truth. They believe the lie, and they believe that lie just as much as others believe what is true. The very same thing is happening in the Ephesian church. These false teachers have what appears to be just as much power and influence as people like Paul and Timothy 
But like the magicians, they are imposters who oppose the truth. They might look good on the outside. They might know all the answers. But eventually, they will be found out. Their folly will be made known. Because what they say doesn't match how they live. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy to remain faithful in the midst of these false teachers. Because his faithfulness will ultimately expose their lies. Isn't that what happened with Moses and the magicians? At one point, all they could do was match the curse. They could never reverse it. And over time, it became so troublesome that they didn't want to do anything to add to what God was doing in his judgment against them. And so they were proven to be fools. The same is true for these false teachers. Those who are faking their faith will not last. They will be found out. Only those who trust in God, truly trust in God, will endure. Now, one of the challenges, I think, of a passage like this is that it's easy to focus the attention on other people. I mean, there's specific names being mentioned here, right? Janus and Jambres. We talked last week or the week before about Philetus and Hymenaeus. And so the temptation is to assume that this is about someone else. To deflect the attention because, well, this really doesn't apply to me. But I believe it does. And here's why. First of all, no one in this room is immune to deception. Believer, unbeliever, no one in this room is immune to deception. And yet, in the last days, it says that deception will infiltrate the church. It was already happening in the early church, and they're just getting started. And I can assure you, it's happened in every generation since then, including our own. It is happening right now. So we must be on guard if we don't want to fall prey. And there's some very practical applications as to what that looks like. One of the things that's implied in this passage is to spend time in God's Word. A lot of times being able to identify what is false is because you've devoted yourself into knowing what is true. So spending time in in God's Word. But here's the key. Not to gain more knowledge, but to get to know a person. The Christian faith is based on relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if what we're learning doesn't draw us closer into that relationship, then we're just gaining knowledge. We need to get to know a person. That's what the pursuit is all about. And, And if there are those in your life who have a negative influence on your faith, people who claim to be a Christian but there's really no evidence of their faith, Avoid them. Avoid them. Do not be in close fellowship with those who claim to know Christ, but whose life does not give evidence of that truth. Their compromise is contagious. And there is no one in this room who is immune to deception, myself included. And I would even take this a step further. And I would say, don't just avoid those people. But don't support their message either. I mean, for example, in our world today, movies and music have a tremendous influence on our culture, right? They influence our language. They shape our perspective. So why in the world would we listen to music that's filled with vulgarity? Why in the world would we go to movies filled with immorality? We're just inviting the compromise into our life. 
And not only that, here's what I think is even worse than any of that, is when these people who we support go and get that award because of our support, what is one of the first things they always say? I would like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Really? So they're a Christian. So that's what Christianity looks like. If you ask people from another country, I bet this is true of you. If you ask people from another country who are spiritually minded, I've talked to several, and many times they have this impression that Christianity in America is people who say they believe in Jesus, but they look like everybody else around them. That's the impression of people who come from another country because that's what they predominantly see. That's a compromise that we should refuse to be a part of, if for no other reason than what it says about our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's plenty of individual applications, but I want to speak to one that applies to the church as we finish up. What is the result if we collectively, as a church, look away from what we should identify as sin? What would happen? Let me give you what I think is the best example in our recent history. Slavery. Slavery. An institution that was supported by the average white American church. Even using Jesus as a means to justify their actions. They would say, well, it's better for these people to be in a Christian home. They were justifying slavery as an evangelistic tool. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty arrogant, unloving, unholy, and brutal to me. You see, collective compromise can corrupt the church. I love what Tony Evans says. Listen to this closely. He says, the goal of the church should be to glorify God by reflecting the values of God among the people of God. Through letting the truth of God be the standard by which we measure right and wrong. And the way we accept skin color, class, and culture. I want you to hear this clearly. Until we live in uncompromising kingdom values within the body of Christ, we cannot carry out God's kingdom agenda in the world. Until we live out uncompromising kingdom values within the body of Christ, we cannot carry out in a kingdom agenda in the world. We are living in the last days. And every day we live is one day closer to Christ's return. We need a church that refuses to compromise. That stands as a stark contrast to the world around us. People who, instead of being lovers of self, are lovers of God. Instead of curbing inward, are looking outward. Considering the needs of someone else is more important than their own, living in a way that brings glory and honor to God. Because when it's all said and done, that's ultimately what matters most, to the praise and glory of His name. That's what we want our lives to say. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, a strong message to a sleeping world. It is easy to think that some of the things that we look at in Scripture don't apply to us. That maybe it applied to certain individuals at a certain time, 
But because your word is living and active, it is eternally relevant in every age, at any time, in every life. And so as we take in your word this morning, would you help us not to accumulate information without coming to a knowledge of the truth? Father, would you take what we've heard this morning and help us know you better? To grow in a relationship with the truth, with you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if there are areas in our life that need conviction, may we know that it is from a loving Father who wants something better for us. Help us to believe that what you've given us in your word is is what you want us to do to, to live within the boundaries of your design. Why? Because that's where you have the very best of what you've created. Because you're a loving Father. And that's what you desire for your children. Father, help us to live faithfully as we follow you in the sin-cursed world. May our lives declare your glory for the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.